I just wanted to confirm that you're okay with uh, us posting uh, this video of your interview on YouTube. I mean, don't I get to decide that after the interview? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you always have a cooling off period. After the, uh, <laughs> right. Isn't that like, what was it in, 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 um, in uh, transaction costs, the, the fundamental transformation? That's right. <laughs> Todd Zenger in the virtual house today. Thank you, Todd, for, uh, for joining us. Let me introduce Todd. Uh, Todd Zenger is, uh, you know, you, you know a person's important when they have three job titles, and each of them is more than just one word. Uh, but Todd is um, University of Utah presidential professor, also the N. Eldon Ch Tanner Chair in Strategy and Strategic Leadership, and the Academic Director of the Goff Strategic Leadership Center at uh, Utah. Uh, Todd uh, previously served on the faculty at uh, Washington University in St. Louis's Olin School of Business. He earned his doctorate at uh, UCLA's uh, Anderson School in 1989. Um, he is, as you all know, a global expert on topics of corporate strategy, strategic leadership, and organization design. He currently serves as a senior editor for Strategy Science. And formerly as associate editor for management science, he serves on the board of uh, SMJ and formerly on the boards of Academy of Management Review, Organization Science, and Strategic Organization. His research has won numerous awards, including the one closest to my heart, the Atlanta Competitive Advantage Conference Best Paper Award in 2009, but also several others that are listed here. And the man, of course, is a publication factory, as you can see here at the bottom of my slide with too many publications for me to even begin counting. So uh, please join me in welcoming Todd Zenger. Thank you, I'm thrilled to be here. So, uh, so thanks very much. So, um, you know, I love to start these interviews by asking our guests uh, how they wound up in this, in this field, uh, in this profession. I uh, never knew a 10-year-old who said I wanted to be a strategy professor when I grow up, so I assume that uh, each one of us has a unique and uh, uh, perhaps indirect pathway into this career. So what was yours? That's a good question. Um, I actually saw that you asked other people this question, so I, I, I actually was thinking about this yesterday. Um, so my both my parents... Um, earned doctorates, but neither were academics, or neither are or were. Um, so I suppose that was in my a little bit in my DNA to, to potentially do something like this. Um, I was an I was an undergraduate at Stanford. Um, and I, I, I don't really remember the sequence of these things. Um, Bill Hesterly will tell you that if anyone wants to know about anything about my life, you should ask him because his memories 
so much better than mine, even though I experienced <laughs> it. So that's how bad my memory is. Um, but I, I, I took a class from Dick Scott, William uh, Richard Scott, uh, who had just published the first edition of his. I don't even I don't know what the title is. Organization famous, you know, very well known organization theory book. Um, and, you know, it talked, you know, walked through all of organizational uh, theory, but it particularly, or well, one of the things that noted, because I was an economics student, it, it sort of talked about markets and hierarchies and Williamson and, and even, I may have even mentioned some of Bill Ochi's work. Um, so that was one sort of trigger. The other thing that sort of happened was I, um, uh, Peters and Waterman's book, mm. uh, Tom Peters book had just come out and Tom yes. Peters, when I was an undergraduate, he was teaching at Stanford business school and he actually approached my father who had a training company at the time, um, that was pretty, pretty well known approached him about putting together a kind of a, a, a training program around that book. Um, this was arguably the very first best-selling business book. Um, mm -hmm. and so it was a big deal at the time that it was, it was coming out. Me meanwhile, Tom Peters was also teaching a class. He was teaching an MBA class and I was an undergraduate, but got permission to take this MBA class, uh, because I was sort of working on the anyway, I started working on this project to help put together this 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 training program. So I suppose it was some combination of Dick Scott. Uh, there was a, a a a class on the economics of the Japanese firm that that a professor named Masahiko Aoki taught. That I think it was some combination of Richard Scott, Tom Peters, and um, this, you know, Japanese theory, the Japanese firm that interested me in a PhD. Having said all that, in the end, I applied to both MBA programs and PhD programs hmm. under the guise of, look, if I decide I don't like the PhD route, I can always, you know, get the, get the PhD and, you know, it's like a supercharged MBA. Naive as I, as, as, right. as I was. Right, exactly. Anyway, I guess I got into a couple, like I got in, I applied to MBA programs, which was a straight out of undergraduate was a very unusual thing as well. But Chicago at the time kind of had a positioning of taking people relatively young. So in the end, I had to choose between a PhD at UCLA or an MBA at University of Chicago. And I don't know, somehow I did some mental coin flip and uh, ended up <laughs> doing the PhD. And, uh, you know, what, of course, I didn't realize at that point is that you get completely socialized over four years that right. ever doing anything that an MBA did or would do was inconceivable, assuming you make it through that process. But anyway, something like that was the story. Well, I'm glad that that coin flip came heads up instead of head instead of tails up, because right. otherwise we would have lost your great contributions to the field. So, uh, so that's that's interesting. So, um, so tell us a little bit about your journey at UCLA. 
um, you know, because we have a lot of uh, doctoral students on the call now and, and, and many who watch on YouTube. Yeah. And so, you know, they all go through their journeys and uh, have questions about, uh, you know, what, what, you know, how to get through that journey. Um, so what, first of all, remind us what your dissertation topic was and because it's been a while and, uh, and then also tell us a little bit about how you found that dissertation topic. Whew. All right. Uh, so my dissertation was on understanding diseconomies of scale. Uh, mm. related to sort of innovation. And I grew up in Silicon Valley, you know, I, I suppose at some level trying to understand, uh, you know, what, what explains Silicon Valley, why this explosion of small firms um, in an environment that was sort of dominated by big tech firms. Uh, and so it was really an effort to understand you know, what is, what was the magic of small firms that enabled them to be more efficient, effective in generating innovation, but it was a very reductionist kind of uh, approach to trying to understand that problem and looking at sort of the advantages that small firms have in being able to create high powered incentives. Mm. And the dissertation was looking at um, how higher ability engineers were sorting into smaller firms, were leaving big firms, going to small firms. Theoretically, it was, you know, kind of the beginnings of trying to understand kind of why big firms couldn't replicate large, I'm sorry, what, yeah, why large firms couldn't replicate these incentives of small firms and dealing with questions about social comparison and and the, you know, the challenge that a big firm has in trying to replicate exactly the kinds of high power incentives that large firms generate. Um, so it was um, a study based on picking two, two, two big Silicon Valley firms, surveyed their internal engineers as well as those that had left and you know, kind of tried to document these patterns of sorting out of the big firm into smaller firms, what were the ability levels of those that left, how many patents they had, um, as well as looking at the differences in just the types of incentives that existed in the small firms and large firms that they joined versus the ones that, you know, that, that, they, that they left. So anyway, that was, that was the, the dissertation. In terms of UCLA, um, UCLA was a remarkable place um, when I, arrived um, in early early 80s um, so you know ar ar arguably the field was at that point Michael Porter was sort of had kind of emerged and and sort of IO economics had, had sort of been, become the first real theoretical um, foundation for kind of what is the new strategy um, before that, you know, it had been, uh, you know, in many ways, Purdue and 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 played a big role in what it was prior to that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so anyway, that, that that was sort of emerging at the time, right? And Dick, you know, so Dick Bramelt was at UCLA, 
uh, and then you had a huge Chicago school mm -hmm. kind of contingent. Uh, Gene, Eugene Fama was sort of hanging out there half the time and half the time in Chicago. You had um, you had Harold Demsitz, Armin Alshin, uh, Ben Klein of, of Klein, Crawford, and Alshin. Um, you also had around the same time Williamson deciding where he was going to go. Right. And he he was he considered coming to UCLA and um, and I you know I think this was arguably the beginnings of the resource based uh, view that UCLA played a hugely right pivotal role. Jay Barney was a brand new uh, professor at uh, uh, he'd arrived a few years before I arrived as a faculty member um, and. Uh, you know the the resource based view kind of emerges as a as an efficiency alternative and uh, to you know kind of the IO Porter power focused um, right. model. This was that was sort of the Harvard school. This was the Chicago school right to strategy that 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 which we observe ex exists because it's efficient, not because they've you know kind of wielded market power to generate these positions of advantage instead these positions of advantage derive from you know from resources from from lucky draws or from um you know comp competence in in generating resources and assets and that that whole tradition was sort of emerging meanwhile it was also a hotbed for uh you know kind of transactions costs and, and right and theory of the firm because Bill Ochi, uh, who's a, a name you probably don't, most of you don't recognize, but but um, he was doing sort of pu pulling Oliver Williamson into the management field directly and doing translations of sort of of uh, of, of that framework, uh, which is again kind of an efficiency approach, a, sh a Chicago. A Chicago school approach to understand right. the theory of the firm in contrast to IO economics. So you had two, two things going on. One was kind of theory of the firm from an efficiency perspective, and then kind of strategy, resource-based view emerging again as a, as a pushback against the, the Harvard right. school. Um, so all that was going, going on. Um, and, and how did those three schools of thought influence your approach to to your education or to your dissertation in specific? Yeah, I mean, so um, you know, we were we were clearly anti anti Harvard School, anti IO. Um, this was efficiency uh, stuff. Um, you know, the resource based view of the stuff at the time was really just you know working papers. Um, you know, I suppose the Lipman and Ramelt piece emerged about the time. But but people love understanding kind of how that how important that would be or what that was was not very clear. Um, Harold Demsitz actually wrote something in '73 that right really is you know kind of the resource. It's it's kind of he really had to point to the origins of the resource based view. It would it would be that piece unless unless no one ever read it. I don't know. It's kind of a little like no, I, I cite it frequently. Yes, but I mean, did did anybody who was developing 
the, the resource base, if you ever read that Demsets piece, it's a little bit like Edith Penrose, right? Right. Uh, no one had read Edith Penrose, and yet she was clearly um, prescient in sort of developing similar ideas to what the what, right. what emerged in the resource base. Bonds and similar to Coase with respect to transaction cost economics, right? So yeah, you know, he had he he was he had pioneered it. So uh, in terms of my, you know, I was a I, I was probably much more focused on um, theory of the firm stuff, um, hence my topic of kind of diseconomies of scale. I also, you know, when I came out, I was very, you know, the, that, that's a pretty micro, the, the mechanisms involved were very, very micro. So um, I didn't really, when I came out, it wasn't clear that I was a strategy scholar. Mm, mm -hmm. It was... You know, I was kind of an organization theorist um, and, and really kind of theory of the firm as being a strategy topic wasn't kind of wasn't a thing at the time that, you know, that I emerged from my Ph.D. program. In fact, so, I, would, I was hired to go teach organization theory at Washington mm -hmm. University originally. So, yeah, I'll get I'll get to that in a moment about how you made that transition to become, you know, really central to to the strategy field but <clears throat> i want to kind of rewind for a moment which uh to to comment on something you said earlier which was it sound from your description it sounds like you were almost born born into your dissertation topic right that uh coming from silicon valley this was kind of bred into you and uh uh so is this is this a topic that you really had in mind before joining the phd program See now you you you. Uh, I got to ask Bill Hesterly that question about memory. <laughs> I, I don't think I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, you know, was it a question? I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, was I puzzled by the question of what? How do we understand Silicon Valley? Abs, you know, cer certainly yes. Um. Yeah. Right. But maybe not at that level of, of specificity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know if I was interested in diseconomies of scale, but right. I came I came to know that that was that was the, the problem that would solve the, 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 the you know, the, the broader question. So, yeah. So let me come, come back to the point that you were making a moment ago about, um, you know, were you in org theory? Were you in strategy? And, and how did that transition take place? <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, it was, there was really no one, you know, when I was coming out, there was really nothing like what I was doing. And it, it's somewhat reflected in, in my initial job market experience. I, I, I went out and had interviews at, you know, all the top schools, many, most of the top schools, and they didn't know what to do with me. Um, and, and I actually didn't, I didn't get a job. Um, you know, it was, it was a couple of years. I kind of took a local job at, um, at Pepperdine and it, and it took a couple of years and really publications, right? Um, when I finally went to Wash U, I had three, I had three A hits, um, oh, wow. in the works or, or out or something like that. Cause I don't think they knew what to you know, 
strategy was not really a much of a field in general. And, you know, I was doing, you know, I was looking at incentives and it was a very economics -y, you know, kind of topic. And so a lot, a lot of economists that were really interested, but I was clearly not an economist. So, um, you know, a lot, a lot of real interest by, by economists, but, but, a, but a typical strategy group was like, Wow, what what is what is this this thing? He's he's drawing from social psychology. He's talking about social comparison uh, processes and and the inability of organizations to to replicate internal incentives. This is this is you know this is not it's not it's not Porter. It's not a mainstream strategy topic. Um, so it, it it was an unusual uh, positioning. And in some sense, the the job description that um, Washington University wrote was exactly for me. I mean, it was they were looking mm. for kind of an organizational economist. As it turned out, I found this about this just just recently, as Jackson Nickerson was going through Oliver Williamson's papers that that all that they had really pushed to hire Oliver Williamson at at Washington University, that they were really trying to have that be their focus, kind of the economics of everything, you know, organizations, accounting, marketing. Mm -hmm. and, um, so in some sense, a little bit of a Rochester type of, right. a, of, a, of a school at the time. Um, but, you know, it really took that initial fit, I think, to, you know, kind of get me into into the strategy field. Neat. Okay. So in, in the early research that you did, whether it's the dissertation or some other projects, what, what would you say were your biggest challenges that you faced and how did you overcome those? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, uh, biggest challenges. Um, You know, I think that um, I think one of the big big challenges is that uh, uh, you know the, the applying economics to organizations was was a bit distasteful to a lot of people at the time, and so a lot of the reviewers you were got you would get were uh, you know kind of disdainful of of the of the approach. Um, and so I think that was early on a challenge. Um, yeah, I think it was also a period in which, um, you know, we were trying to figure out better methods, um, for things as, as well. And so, uh, especially being at a school with a lot of economists, you know, I was pushed to sort of try to use pretty sophisticated methods despite, you know, the limitations of data. And, and anyway, anyway, I think it, I think it was sort of the, again, this is the same issue of the fit of, of economics within organization theory. That was the, was the biggest challenge. Um, I also, when I joined Washington university, I was literally the only person who was really in the group. Um, hmm. Uh, that was 
trained, you know, the, the other, the two, one person was OB and the other person was, uh, the other two people, one was a political scientist and the other was an operations person. Mm. Um, so it was partly also having colleagues, right? So I had no colleagues when I initially mm -hmm. arrived at Washington University in my field directly. I can see where that would be a big challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the importance of getting feedback on research is so valuable in, in yeah. developing a project. So I could see where that would be, uh, that would be a big setback. So um, tell us a little bit about how you got from those, that early research um, on diseconomies of scope in Silicon Valley to the research that you've been doing more recently. What's, what's been your journey in terms of topic focus or methodology focus or, you know, or, or you know, how, how have your interests changed and shifted over the years? So I would describe myself as a bit, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I'm not, a, I don't have one stream of research. Um, it's, it's a bit, uh, I, I, I'm not wanting to use the word scattered, I don't think it's scattered, but it's, it's broad. Um, but you'll see some of the same, same themes. So I'm currently working on a project um, on the impact of pay transparency on the gender pay gap, on e equality in, of pay in organizations and kind of the relationship between pay for performance. Hmm. That study, you know, is a direct extension of my dissertation in the sense that that was dealing with the problem of, of uh, a pay comparison or social comparison limiting firms, large firms from being able to mimic small firms uh, incentive uh, packages. And what happens, so this study looks at, um, uh, in, it looks in academia and we, we look at um, waves of sort of transparency shocks that hit different states mm. show how that pay transparency causes pay to be more equal, uh, more equitable, but also very significantly dampens the relationship between pay and performance. Mm. Those same, those mechanisms are the same mechanisms that I was dealing with in the, in the, in the dissertation. What happens at a large firm is that, you know, pay is much, much more, uh, it's transparent and it's also, you know, kind of the reference group that you care about. Right. Um, and so it's very similar kinds of mechanisms. Uh, yeah, those, I've kept those themes up. Obviously theory that, you know, that was a theory of the firm kind of question. I'm interested in boundary questions. So mm -hmm. other parts of my work have extended into boundary questions. The paper I'm going to present today is a direct extension of that dissertation work, work in the sense that it's trying to deal with boundary questions, kind of adding to kind of fairness and equity and social comparison to kind of the notions of purpose and, and how that affects boundary decisions. Um, I suppose other, other puzzles, other questions have emerged um, from teaching often, right? It's been, mm -hmm. you know, the, the work I've done on kind of organization design and kind of the dynamics of organization design, these were questions that emerged very early 
actually the the it was probably the second or maybe it was the first year I was teaching at Washington University. I was teaching about um, centralization and decentralization. Mm -hmm. I was sort of saying, look, here's when you want to centralize and here's when you should decentralize. And I was, of course, I was teaching MBA students who were probably five to 10 years older than I was. These were evening MBA students and, you know, my memory of this was that they a couple of students basically said you don't know what you're talking about you know we've watched our company centralize and then decentralize and centralize and decentralize and it has nothing to do with what you're talking about (laughs) go home to california uh give up this profession anyway so that that wasn't what was said but that was what i felt Uh, yeah and that that you know that that initiated the question of what is really going on? Why do firms change their structure uh, so frequently, or why do they change it at all? If we have this theory about fit, you know, why isn't fit static? And this led to kind of a question, you know, a different theory, theoretical approach, um, built up though from first principles, which were look if structure is is discrete and performance is continuous, um, then within a particular range, the optimal choice is gonna be dynamic fit, not static fit. Um, and I've done a number of things, you know, kind of related to that to that topic. Um, but, you know, I don't know, I, I suppose other than that, the biggest driver of where your career goes is where your co-authors, as you get older, it's where your co-authors want to play. And so the origin of like of this paper was I had thought about related kinds of topics and, and Claudine came to me wanting to write some kind of theory of the firm paper involving purpose. And, mm. and I, I think that's the history, but, but um, I've been, thinking a lot about sort of the, this this issue of legal boundaries and why legal distinction matters so much and what's wrong with sort of social theories of the firm. They're not really theories of the firm at all, but theories of sociality. And anyway, so we decided to weave that stuff together. But, it, you know, a, a lot of, you know, kind of where you're where you go is all about the problems you you see. Right. Right. So, so it sounds like, you know, so I get these questions from doctoral students sometimes, you know, should, should my research be theory driven? Should it be phenomenon driven, et cetera? I never know what to answer them. I, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, but what works for you, Todd, in terms of that question? Uh, I, 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 it sounds like a lot of this is phenomenon driven, right? Like, you know, the executive MBA students telling you, hey, the phenomenon isn't what you think or or the, um, you know, trying to figure out Silicon Valley. Um, um, But some of it sounds like, or or your work on uh, on open innovation, right? That seemed like maybe perhaps a phenomenon driven, Um, but but some of your work seems to be more theory driven. So where where do you come down on this and how does it it work for you? Um, I hate to generalize that, but I mean, I suppose, it's um, I, 
I mean, so for instance, the stuff on open innovation, I don't know if that's phenomenon or theory. It was a reaction to everybody in open innovation sort of saying, you know, open innovation is the greatest thing in the world and is going mm -hmm. to solve all of the world's problems and everything should be open. And, you know, I, I, obviously, number one, that's not true. And that's not what we see. And there are all kinds of problems with open and, and you know, so just my theoretical mind is sort of saying, look, you know, this has got to be some kind of fit. When is this valuable? When is it not? I don't know if that's phenomenon or, or theoretical. Um, th this paper today is probably much more theory driven. Um, but again, it's all very, very uh, anchored in kind of observation, right? I mean, it's sort of recognizing that clearly there's more going on here than the standard sort of economic theories of the firm. Um, so I'm squarely in the middle. It's about sounded like it. Yeah, formed um, uh, applied, applied theory. I'm clearly an applied theorist, right? I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not dealing with first principles game theory and trying to build out, you know, new new models. Um, it's 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 much much more applied. Yeah, it sounds like that. So the um, the 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 topic that you focus on, as you've said, organization theory, incentives, firm boundaries, definition of the firm. Um, uh, what is it? So if so, if we take that as your field of specialty, um, what it what. What do you think are the most important unanswered questions at this point in your area of research? What do we not know about those topics, about the boundaries of the firm or about incentives or about the definition of a firm or, or however you define your, your, your field of, of, of specialty? What do we not know that we really ought to know about that? What's, what's unanswered? I mean, I should say that one of the things I spent a lot of time the last 10 years working on is this kind of um, what I might characterize as sort of an alternative definition of kind of what strategy is, but it's kind of this theory based approach and, 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 and thinking, um, which is probably separate from, you know, all this theory of the firm. Well, okay, we can discuss that too. But, but so in, any, in any event, in, in terms of what do I think are, and I suppose I say that because I think that is, that is one of the big unanswered questions is sort of where do strategies come from that I think the field has been built up as a set of tools and a focus on kind of units of analysis and, you know, has, has really not engaged so much with, you know, how do people come up with strategies where where do these theories of value creation come from and that that's critically important i contrast right. with yeah i contrast this a little bit with um entrepreneurship which seems to have you know been obsessed with uh you know their own version of of where does 
entrepreneur, you know, where do entrepreneurs come from, which I think is a horrible, you know, I mean, it's sort of a bunch of navel gazing and epistemology <laughs> discussions and um, right. what is an opportunity? Yeah. What's an opportunity and, and, you know, what is, it's kind of debates among philosophical traditions. Um, and so I, you know, both in, in, in entrepreneurship and in strategy, I think we need a much more pragmatic, um, you know, narrative about where, about where this, you know, where uh, value comes from. And I think this does relate to this relates to theory of the firm because it's this it's also true of the theory of the firm um which is it's also been very reductionist it's been you know tell me the transactions you're trying to to govern and I'll tell you how to organize and yet it it you know the way we actually compose firms is somebody has a a theory of value and then they orchestrate a bunch of decisions about boundaries that are consistent with that vision of what they're trying to compose. And so I, I think that there's real value in, you know, kind of making the strategic actor central mm -hmm. in our theories, right? And, and that's both in strategy as well as theory of the firm that, okay, you know, almost normative, like, you know, how do I, what do I do? Um, or I suppose, yeah, it's, it's both what I, what do I do? That's kind of secondary, but the first would be, you know, kind of where do these, how do I come up with these theories of, of, of value? So I think that's, that's really an unanswered kind of terrain. Um, it's not that people aren't working on this, don't get me wrong, but I don't, I don't think we've sort of nailed that. Um, in terms of the theory of the firm itself, I do, you know, I, I think that this, the kinds of things that this, this paper that I'll talk about represents is open terrain. Um, you know, ec economics hasn't really dealt well with social phenomenon uh aggregate phenomenon um you know how how organizations emerge the the influence of you know non-monetary incentives i mean it, it clearly they're moving massively in this direction but i still think that that is an area where we have a tremendous amount to contribute good good so for all the doctoral students listening there's some topics that uh that a, a long-standing expert in the field says are, are insufficiently answered. So yeah. perhaps some, some dissertation topics there. Um, so uh, speaking of um, speaking of that, uh, I noticed that you have uh, uh, served on the dissertation committees for probably close to two dozen doctoral students. At this point. Um, what's the most important piece of advice that you give to your doctoral students? The most important piece of advice I give to potential doctoral students is don't do this, right? But, but assuming it's, or it's not what you think it is. To, yeah, <laughs> to do it. Um, uh, 
gosh. You mean after they're done or in the middle of their dissertation? You could do both. You could be either, yeah, I mean, either one. After they're done, I think, you know, one of the things I, I tell, I suppose, new faculty is, you know, while you're focused on um, getting your dissertation out the door, you need to be, you need to be multitasking in terms of thinking about the next project. What's the data set? And in particular, collecting data, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got access to the data that you need when you're ready to turn to the next, to the next project. I know people have different theories about you know, how they work. I'm, I'm, I get bored quickly, I suppose. And so I need several projects going at once because I just get tired working on one for months at a time, right? I have to, you know, I, I'll do it for like three, four days and then I got to throw it over the wall to my co-author <laughs> and, and pick up something. I'll have a little more energy. So, you know, this is the wow. exact opposite advice that Jackson gave on this channel. He said, focus on one project at a time. Yeah. I mean, I, I so I do, it's, it's true. I do this, but it's like, you know, my two weeks is like max. I, I should say, I mean, it's, it can be longer than that, but even, even in the two weeks I'll need, you know, I, it'll be a breath of fresh air to be able to spend some, spend some time on another paper edit or something like that, that mm -hmm. comes through. Um, no, Jackson's completely wrong and you can <laughs> <in> space. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I obviously, obviously you can take this to, to the to the other extreme and people have different different working styles but i'll i'll for instance i kind of have these phases where i've got five projects i'm working and they all kind of hit at the same time and then i reach this point like okay now i gotta start some new mm -hmm. some new things um but if people work different people work differently um now what other advice to phds phd students you know, I, I, these are, you hear these things a lot, I'm sure, but, but, uh, you gotta get the, the framing, right. Uh, that a good question, not, and obviously the, you know, some of it's about picking your good dissertation topic, but my maxim is always that, a, that a good, a, a good question buys you a tremendous amount of forgiveness and on, on identification. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, and for, for, for good purpose, that isn't, you know, that you're not trying to like, you know, get one, get one past people, but, but the most impactful things are not because of careful <laughs> identification. They're well, and especially a novel, really great questions. Yeah. And it's particularly a novel question, I would think too. Yeah. Yeah. A good novel question. They're going to, they're, it's going to give you, get you some forgiveness and, 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 you know, an extension of that would be a really well-framed, you know, the same paper really well-framed is much more likely to get in than, you know, the exact same results and data. And you'll get better at framing papers over time. Uh, and you really should use your uh, faculty mentors to, to help you with that framing and work with them on those first two and a half two pages, three pages, whatever it is, uh, to get that right. Um, because if, 
people aren't intrigued by the puzzle you propose, you know, it's, it's going nowhere. Right. And that's true of reviewers. It's true of, you know, an audience that you're speaking to. Yeah, um, I think I agree. I mean, it's better to do the right thing well, better to do the right thing poorly than the wrong thing perfectly. Yeah, yeah. So Plus you, um, get, you, get, you get multiple shots at doing the if, if you frame a good problem, you'll be working on it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you'll get better data and you know. Exactly. So um, before we close out what um, any major turning points in your career that you want to talk about where you uh, made a shift in direction and Maybe tell us a little bit about the reasoning or, or what happened there. Gosh, was there any shift in direction? I suppose I had a point at which I could have gone the full administrative route and become a dean. Okay. And I didn't choose that path. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I, you know, no, I don't think my, I don't think there's been any major pivot. I suppose this is advice for old people, not young people, but, um, you know, what I have appreciated over my career is working with young faculty. Um, I, you know, I try to be very, very careful about not exploiting young faculty members and making sure I am contributing in joint projects and, and such. But, you know, you come with great questions and um, new methods. And I have, you know, kept, while I'm not, I probably can't implement the latest, I, I'm, I'm confident I couldn't implement the latest econometric methods um, because it's been too long since I, you know, work with a statistical package, right. I understand. Um, and I, I have learned massive amounts, you know, working on this recent paper with Tomas uh, Obloy on um, pay transparency. I, you know, I didn't even know there was a, neither, actually neither of us did, knew there was a whole area called, um, you know, kind of dynamic difference, you know, difference and differences and, and you know, how you deal with uh, all kinds of empirical challenges when, um, you know, you have, you, you, you got problems with parallel trends and, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, it's all stuff that, um, you know, working with young faculty and, and, you know, you see if you don't, you know, kind of stay connected with the next generation, right. People's careers just drop off a cliff. Um, and so, you know, part of my, advice to the mid-career people here would, would be, you know, don't just work with mid-careers, you know, don't just work with your, your fellow peers. You have to work with, with folks who are sort of staying on the cutting edge of, of kind of what's out there and that that's pivotal to, to staying in the field as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, just quitting by the time you're 60. Exactly. You know, and I, I enjoy working with doctoral students and, and junior faculty members for exactly that reason. You know, they bring fresh perspective, fresh tools, fresh questions and, and that sort of thing. Um, 
but what I bring is, you know, I, I may not be able to do QCA or do machine learning, but damn, I know how to write a reviewer response letter, you know? <laughs> yeah, too. <laughs> and that's important, right? Yeah. And that's something they don't have is they've never had, had to written a re reviewer response letter. So yeah. good. Well, thank you, Todd, for, for, this was fun. for, for uh, sitting for the interview and for uh, playing along with our, uh, our celebrity talk show interview uh, ritual. Uh, so everybody, please join me in thanking Todd Zinger. Great to be with you. Good.